Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Pushcart Prize winning author Bill Cotter. He is the author of the novels Beaver Chart and the Parallel Apartments, along with the middle grade adventure series St. Philomene's Infirmary for Magical Creatures, which is penned under the name W. Stone Cotter. His new novel is The Splendid Ticket, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Bill, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Jason. Uh, I'm happy to be here. It's an honor to have you here, Bill. And my first question for you is, uh, as I mentioned, you are a middle grade author and an adult author. We'll call it an adult author. Um, Is it at all difficult to change hats from one style to another? How do you manage this? You know, it's as a writer, it's not such a difficult thing to change hats. It feels like I've got juggling a few different things, um, uh, short stories and and um, and novels here and there. I just pick up where I get bored with something or get stuck with something and pick up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. What's what's kind of complicated is separating the two from the uh, from the public. It's uh, I was originally wrote the children's books or the middle grade adventure uh, books under my name, Bill Cotter. Mm-hmm. And the publisher said, oh, no, 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 we don't want young, uh, uh, middle grade readers, eight to 12 year olds going and reading your what they call if you write children's and and adult books, they call the adult books grown up books. So mm-hmm. if you write children's and grown up books, they don't want the the, the audiences to meet. Um mm-hmm. So the, of course, the um, uh, grown-up books can be read by anyone, um, but the children's books there for young young people, and they mm-hmm. don't want them to. And the other thing is, McSweeney's covers tend to be very uh, playful, mm-hmm. and they could be interpreted as as books for young people, and but they are very much not. They're they have very uh, mature themes. Yeah, absolutely. So not much of a difference uh, as a writer, but for the marketing of the books, very different. Um, Yeah, yeah, well, very good, Bill. Uh, Let's now dive into this magnificent new novel, The Splendid Ticket. Uh, First, let's talk about the town, McCandless, Texas, uh, that the novel takes place in, the name of which reminded me of Christopher McCandless, the subject of Into the Wild. Um, What is it like for these coal and oil towns? Uh, McCandless is an oil town. What is it like for these towns that the world has moved on from? And what are the rewards and challenges of setting a novel in such a town? Well, uh, it's it's easier to set um, a novel in a in a in a fictive place, I think. you you run some risks like setting a novel in Austin, Texas, or New York, or Boston, or New Orleans, where a, a couple of one of my novels is, and Austin, where a couple of them are. Everyone knows things, and you have to where everything is, at least the people that live here. And if you have if you do something in the plot 
that contradicts the geography of a place, you get called out on it. Mm -hmm. If you write something about a fictive place like McCandless, Texas, which is kind of based on uh, Lockhart around there, south of here, um, uh, then you get, uh, uh, then you can do whatever you want. You can change things around. You can make it as large as you want. You can make it hilly if you want, uh, do anything with the geography. Uh, it just allows you a little bit of freedom. Uh, McCandless is one is, is kind of, is, uh, um, there's some <clears throat> elements of McCandless in a, in a series of short stories I've written. So it's kind of turning into this um, place where I've, I, I guess, uh, where I'm setting quite a few things. It's easier to write from that perspective. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and this novel was one of the, it was the first one, actually. It was a, it started as a short story about 10 years ago. And yeah. it was the first place I set in McCandless. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, those 10 years paid off. It's a fantastic novel. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for writing it. Uh, now, Bill, let's talk about gambling. Uh, the splendid ticket of the novel's title is alluding to a lottery ticket. Our protagonist, Angie, has won the lottery, a $324 million jackpot. Uh, talk to us about the lottery, Bill, and tell us what types of people tend to play the lottery both outside of your novel and inside of your novel specifically in a shut down oil town like McCandless Texas you know that's a good question I don't know exactly if there's a type of person that plays the lottery it seems like everybody does it's some kind of fantasy and who hasn't thought about what you would do if you won this massive uncountable amount of money you know who which friends would you give it to which charities would you give it to would you not accept it i think even people think oh i'm i will not accept it because i know how bad it turns out for lottery winners and it does seem that it does culturally that uh lottery winners don't wind up in very good very <laughs> happy ways. I, they, I've heard stories about people winding up buried in concrete and someone in Florida. I don't know if you remember that story about 15 years ago. Yeah, Florida. Maybe. And uh, I just thought, uh, what will happen if I do this, if I, if I present this opportunity, which is so attractive, uh, but how we understand it to be so risky. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, that's that's what that's what happened with this. It didn't start. The story didn't actually start out with any having having anything to do with a lottery at all. Uh, but there was gambling. It was uh, about um, uh, a man who goes to a racetrack and and um, uh, uh, doesn't take his girlfriend is meeting someone else there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's the conflict of that story. And it expanded into this novel about the lottery. Yeah, absolutely. And listeners, you may remember um, way back, you know, four years or so ago, we hosted Scott McClanahan and talked about a lottery winner in West Virginia who had left all of his cash in a pickup truck outside of a strip club or some such thing. And I remember uh, that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah just, uh, just destructive folks uh, with their money and bad combination. Um, well, let's continue to talk about gambling a little bit, Bill. Um, Angie's father was a gambler. Her husband, Dean, is a gambler. Uh, do women who grow up in a family with gamblers tend to marry gamblers? Or further, do you think that women tend to marry their fathers just generally? Wow, I hadn't really thought about that. Um, uh, I, I made her father um, a gambler. That was a that was a character in the original story. Mm -hmm. um, and then 
Dean Lee, I thought would would have been, his gambling issues would have been a repellent to Angie, but somehow other factors uh, um, attract her to him, and she overlooks it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I want to say to her peril. Um, and but I don't think that that's a necessary. I won't make a generalization about about women really, you know, going marrying their fathers or anything like that. I, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, uh, um, it does seem to th- be a, a workable theme in fiction, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I hadn't really thought about that actually. Yeah, well, uh, that's what I'm here for, Bill. Um, <laughs> A problem that Angie and Dean run into uh, due to Dean's gambling debts, Dean uh, is Angie's husband, listeners, um, is Lolly, a gentleman who always comes to their house and takes anything expensive they have to fulfill part of Dean's debts. Uh, I know how Dean got into this situation, uh, but do folks who get themselves into these predicaments have any recourse? For example, can they contact law enforcement or are they worried that doing so will out them as gamblers what are your thoughts on this bill well of course for uh uh if you think of it from a from a pathological point of view from a psychopathological point of view you could there's gamblers anonymous you can call someone that will will help you with the Mm -hmm. psychological issues of it with the practical issues of it um owing money um there's no there's not really a recourse no Mm-hmm. um it's uh it's it's a risk one takes yeah yeah absolutely um and i guess like the legality of gambling is different from state to state well thank you bill um we'll talk more about gambling after the break but first listeners we're going to take a moment to hear a word from our sponsors and then i will be right back with bill cotter the Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Bill Cotter, author of The Splendid Ticket, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Uh, Bill, one more question about gambling before we move on to other topics. Uh, Dean, who has amassed his gambling debts at poker games, is a terrible poker player, like legendarily terrible. Uh, My question is, why keep on playing? It seems like the only time he has ever made any money was when he ran a game that he didn't participate in. So why keep playing? And from Angie's perspective, why allow him to keep playing? He's simply a gambler. I mean, it's and that and poker is his game of choice. It could be blackjack. It could be scratch tickets. It could be Baccarat, whatever. But he picked poker. It's um, in Texas. Poker is not legal except in these social clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a there's a dozen or so around this around uh, 
around the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he either goes to those clubs. Well, they weren't, ex- they didn't exist when this book was written or when mm-hmm. it's set anyway. So he plays on in people's homes. He plays in house games. And that was all there was except for a couple of regional um, uh, reservation casinos. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was what he did. It was all there was. He didn't care for anything else. And it's what he grew up with. Mm-hmm. And it's what he taught his children to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from Angie's perspective, why does she allow him to keep losing all of their money? She she wants Dean Lee to be happy. Um, mm-hmm. And she thinks, OK, uh, I'll let him do as much as he can and that we can afford. Mm-hmm. Uh she has some sway over the person that he owes the money to because he, that man, his name is Lolly Prager, mm. was, um, she used to babysit for his children when they were, when they were younger. Mm. And he is very, he feels a great deal of affection for her and a great deal of conflict about collecting money from her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, she has some leverage there. Um, also, it keeps him out of the house for a while. And um, so she doesn't have to have to deal with him but she does have her moments of where she tries to persuade him to stop and it's um it doesn't really work Mm -hmm. thank you bill um let's now move on from gambling to guns um as we sit here recording this this episode won't be published for a few weeks but um as we're recording there was just another mass shooting in the United States of America in uh, an LGBTQ uh, club in Colorado Springs. These things are happening, it seems, every week, sometimes multiple times a week, uh, to the degree that they're not even reported in the news all the time, or they just slip under our radars. Um, So a general question first about guns. Why do you think people in the United States of America, especially in Texas, love their guns. Why do we as a country feel like we need access to guns all the time? I think it, it's rooted in fear. Um, there's a fear that uh, some control uh, uh, will be uh, asserted by people um, with, uh, how do I put it? Um, I don't know how other, other way to put it, except that it's rooted in fear and it's an individual fear. It's not a collective fear. It, mm-hmm looks like a collective fear and people organize it. There's gun lobbies, of course, but it's rooted in individual fear. You're afraid that someone will take over and take your things and you can't defend them. Um, and the only way to defend them or the most efficient way to do that is with a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I didn't set out to write any kind of controversial book. I just wanted to write a story, but mm-hmm. this, the gun in the book, which is the, you know, the central object in the book i don't know what other way to put it um uh becomes something and because of its topicality now uh my publisher mcsweeney's has asked me to write an essay about it Mm. a reflection on guns not a not a position i'm not taking a position on which and i've written that Mm. uh and it's essentially i've never held a gun in my life i don't know what even a bb gun feels like in my hands i can imagine everyone can um and uh my essay is about my reflection on my experience with guns is secondhand. Who hasn't been affected by it in one way or another? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we're affected by it today. That that uh, that massacre um, in Colorado Springs that was that was just yesterday. We're just finding out how horrific it was, mm-hmm. and we're reminded every t- every time something like that happens, uh, just how often it happens. And you're right. How you said that they they don't even t- report everything now. 
Mm. Um, just the most, just the most awful ones. Um, uh, I don't know if I'm really answering your question or not, but I, ha I have, I, I'm, I think that this book may, may bring this up. And that's why my, my publisher asked me to write that essay. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just to flesh out the answer to the question a little bit more, why do you think this fear that people have that's making them want a gun? Um, why do you think that's so magnified in the United States of America where it's not in other countries? Uh, I think it has to do partly with with uh, historical culture that guns were what defended us from um what protect we were we were allowed to we protected ourselves with guns or, or mythically speaking mm. early on mm. uh and service members um there are a lot of there are a lot of guns around as you know service members when they get out of the armed services keep their keep their weapons sometimes um so there are guns everywhere that are just waiting for something to happen and no one wants no one wants anyone to take those away mm -hmm. um and uh it's complicated business, though, uh, because the people that want to keep their guns, uh, you know, the law in Texas, if you go bankrupt, you get to keep your house, your car and two guns. Mm. That's the law in Texas. That's the attitude towards it. Mm. It's deeply, deeply rooted. Mm. And I don't really think there's a way to change it either. Yeah, you know, and speaking historically, there's a there's a large gulf between a, a musket and a semi-automatic uh, machine gun. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, we'll, we'll get back to this kind of thread in a moment. But as a writer, um, hopefully most of our listeners are familiar with this principle. Um, do you subscribe to the principle of Chekhov's gun? Oh, I just read about that recently. Remind me what it was, what it is. It's where um, I'm going to. Oh, it has to be used. If it's there, yeah. it has to be used. If yeah. appears in the first act, it has to go off by the third or fourth act. I don't remember which one. I don't subscribe to that. I think it just has to be appear to be a threat, just like in. Um, I was thinking a little bit about a. Uh, I think it's a. Um, who was the painter from Maine that painted? Uh, I can never remember anybody's names anymore. Anyway, there's a there's a is it Rockwell? Who are you speaking of? Andrew Wyeth. Um, right. I think he was a main painter. He has a few paintings where he has a picture of a a gun over a mantel place, and then just the hooks of the gun, mm -hmm. where the gun would lie, where there's no gun there, just the hooks. That's enough of a threat for a narrative to work. No, I don't think a gun has to be used. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Um, we're alluding to this moment that happens in your book, and it happens very early in the story, so this is not a spoiler, but listeners, if you are um, spoiler-averse even for things that happen early on in a novel, then I suggest you take this moment to pick up your phone or your computer or whatever device you're listening to this uh, on and pause it, and then come back to us after you've read the first 70 or 80 pages of the novel or so. I'll give you one more moment to locate your pause button you're pressing the button now all right very good um a moment that happens very early in this story is that um our protagonist's daughter nadine shoots uh, her sister sophie um, when she nadine finds her dad's gun she's trying to get enough money to buy a, a barbie or ken doll and is sticking her sister up for two dollars and 25 cents in quarters um first bill 
Can you take a moment to talk about gun safety as this type of situation does play out in our culture over and over again, where a child finds a gun and then it goes off? Um, how can this sort of thing be prevented? I think the very technologically advanced uh, gun safety uh, methods, uh, gun safety devices uh, can be used, should be used. Mm -hmm. uh, just hiding them, keeping them unloaded. But hell, I don't know anything about guns. I mean, I really, mm -hmm. they were never around when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know. I had to interview people to ask about how guns worked, what they smelled like before and after they were fired. Mm -hmm. Um I don't, I don't really know. Um, I was afraid to read about them on the internet. I didn't want to get mm -hmm. stuck in some, some freaky rabbit hole, uh, you know, K hole of guns. Yeah. I just, mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, I don't really know anything about them. It was really fiction. I had to ask and, and learn as much as I could about how they worked and either just how, what, how, what they felt like in your hand, how much they weighed, mm -hmm. um, could a child fire one? I didn't know the answer to that. And in mm -hmm. fact, the person that I interviewed about this, uh, I got started to get more and more specific about the questions in order to get the details about the salient scene. Mm -hmm. And he started, he said, Hey, what's this story about anyway? And I thought, Jesus Christ, has this guy got a gun on him? Mm -hmm. And we were in a public space. And um, I thought, I just cut it off. I just said, you know, I said, I changed the subject, paid the bill and got out of there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of a paradox, you know, isn't it that, um, that we, you know, powers that be want people to have access to guns for means of fear and protection, like you're saying, going back historically to, you know, the British are coming, we have to bring our muskets out. And then also preaching that you have to put your gun in an unreachable space and, you know, have all these mechanisms that make it unfireable. So you have to ask what's really the point if you're trying to protect yourself and you can't actually reach it. Like, is it really necessary? Um, I don't know. It's um, a, that's a very good point, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's just when you when you think about things, the roads you go down, um, it just right. seems, doesn't make sense. But thank you, Bill. Um, fascinating that this novel is, you know, the gun plays such a central thing in, in that you are so gun averse. I think that that's that's fantastic and fascinating. Um, but finally, Bill, uh, when a couple like um, like our protagonists lose a child, um to such a tragic accident with such avoidable circumstances, can that ever be gotten over? I realize that this is the whole crux of your novel, but can a family, and I'm including Nadine here too as a child, ever really move on? No. That's a very simple no. No one can move on. Uh, I think that there are times when... Um, Anyone, after following any kind of tragedy, we're very resilient creatures. We can we can survive. We can persist. We can see how things are going to uh, um, maybe turn out if something you know theoretical happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what this this lottery is supposed to represent. It's this quite. It asks the question. You know, can this young family survive? Will this help? Will it make a difference? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, it doesn't. Uh, mm -hmm. you know that's a spoiler but of course it doesn't um uh but i i i wanted to ask that question yeah absolutely and it's a very important question this is a very important novel um and it's compulsively readable and normally uh you don't get those two things together but with this one you absolutely do 
listeners. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And thank you again for writing this. Um, Listeners, I've been speaking with Bill Cotter, author of The Splendid Ticket, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Bill, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Bill Cotter for joining me. Copies of The Splendid Ticket can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.